What kind of things make you, you angry? I mean, if you think of our day and age, there's plenty, I'm sure, uh, that can get you fairly riled up. It doesn't take too, too much to get me frustrated uh, on any given day. And that's not just because of what's going on in the world or politics, just uh, my own lack of sanctification. Uh, but what makes God angry? And what kind of things come to mind when you think of God's anger? Normally, our minds would run immediately to sin and all the rebellion that takes place before his face from the beginning of our race, even till now. But I wonder, as we look at this text this morning, if the things that make God angry are the same things that you might suspect when you hear the question. So I want us to see this morning uh, these longer sections under a few headings. First, God presents a king to a rejecting people. God presents a king to a rejecting people. If you look at verses 17 to 27, we pick up where we, we left off in the book of Samuel. And the last time we saw uh, our, our, our soon-to-be coronated king, Saul, he had been anointed by Samuel. He had been told that he was to be the king. Uh, and yet we were left in a somewhat uh, strange position of not quite sure what we should think of this man. Uh, it had been set up, or at least seemingly seemed to be set up, where he could take action against the Philistines, and when he saw them, he was to put his hand to whatever it had been entrusted to do, but he, he doesn't act. When he comes back from his meeting with Samuel, his own uncle even asked him, so, you know, what was it? What is it that Samuel said to you? And Saul doesn't mention the fact that he had been told he'd be king. He just kind of blanks that whole thing. He says, well, Samuel just assured me that the donkeys had been found. And so we leave with a somewhat, uh, uh, you know, vague notion. Uh, what is it about Saul that we should be thinking? Should we have confidence in this king to come? Should we think lowly of him? Well, our text this morning picks up with that story, and it moves from the private anointing of Sam, uh, Saul with Samuel to his public anointing and declaration as king. And you see that our text begins with what sounds, at least at the beginning, like it's going to be a judgment. Samuel gathers the whole of the people together at Mizpah, uh, and he somewhat abruptly begins a speech where he starts to recount all that God had done for Israel, and not in a sort of rejoicing way, but in a very uh, confrontational way. He says, you will remember, right? It was God, I, God, who led you out of Egypt and I delivered you from all your oppressors. And he begins to list all the mighty deeds that God had performed to make Israel a nation. And as soon as he's listed these, he says, but you will also remember that you rejected me as your king, which that just, you know, sounds foreboding. This doesn't sound like it's going anywhere good. And then it says, now, therefore. Now, this kind of setup uh, what Samuel is doing here is known in the Old Testament as a judgment oracle. It happens time and time again through the prophets and in other places where you will see God list all that he has done. I am the Lord and I brought you out of Egypt. I'm the Lord and I delivered you from all your oppressors, the Egyptians and all the kingdoms who oppressed you. But you, and then he begins to list all of uh, you know, the crimes and the sins committed against him. And then following that, there normally is a, now therefore, here's the consequence. And that's how this text is set up. Samuel tells us what they've done. 
He lists, you know, what God has done in their favor. And then we would expect as listeners, okay, here comes the bad news. But the bad news just never comes. I mean, it's so strange that, that some commentators will say, well, him announcing for them a king, that is their judgment. That they're going to get Saul as a king, and that's the way that God's going to judge them as a people. But we have to let the text tell us if that's really how we're supposed to view this. Are we supposed to view Saul negatively in this text and therefore to view him as kind of God's chastisement for their rejection of him as his king, as their king? Um, so instead of a judgment, we get Saul, uh, Samuel gathering everyone together. And he says, all right, we're going to cast lots, which again, it seems like a hard left turn in the middle of the text. And the last time we saw the casting of lots, that wasn't good news either. Uh, this is a way to discern God's will for God to reveal uh, what he desires from the people. And the last time that we saw this was in the book of Joshua, after Achan had sinned in the camp and therefore the people had been judged. They lost a battle they should have won. And so God says, all right, gather everyone together. We're going to start to cast lots. And what happens? It narrows it down and narrows it down and narrows it down until we realize Achan is the man and him and his family are punished. And so we think, okay, maybe this is how the punishment's going to come. But instead we get this narrowing down of lots and we are told Saul will be your king. It's so jarring, again, that many uh, are shocked by it. Uh, you know, you want a king, fine, here's your king, and he'll be a punishment to you. But that's not, again, how the story unfolds in our text this morning. Uh, after the casting of lots, uh, the people are told what we already knew. I mean, there is no surprise in this text. Samuel knows Saul's going to be king. Saul knows Saul's going to be king. God's not surprised, right, who, who's going to be king. And we as the readers aren't surprised because we already were told a chapter ago that Saul is God's man. The only surprise in the text is that when Saul is finally announced, he's just nowhere to be found. I mean, it's so strange. It says, you know, behold, your king. And everyone's like, well, where is he? It's like the raffle, you know, when they're calling the number and no one's coming up to claim the prize. And they keep, you know, calling out his name, Saul, is there a Saul here? And so the search is on, you know, where is this guy? And so they inquire of the Lord, where is he? Is there another man we should be looking for? And God says, no, you know, you'll find him hiding in the baggage, which is more, you know, hiding in the armaments. He's there with, you know, the weapons of warfare. He's kind of, you know, uh, you know, huddled down uh, for some reason over there. And the text doesn't tell us again how to view this. If you look at, you know, some of the ancient commentaries, Josephus looks at this text and he says, well, that just shows, you know, the humility of King Saul. Others view it as a very clear sign of his timidity. But the text doesn't give us any declaration of it. And so we can't really make much of a judgment. All we know is that he's not there when they call him. But it does build up suspense, right? If you were his, uh, the people of Israel and you'd just been told God is coronating a king in your midst, you'd want to know who this guy is. What is he like? And so they all go on this hunt, you know, uh, you know, the Easter egg hunt for their king. Uh, and they, when they finally find him, there he arises out of the baggage and he's massive. I mean, head and shoulders above everyone else. And we've already been told he's the most handsome man in the whole nation. I mean, can you imagine that this is your first sight 
of your king. I mean, it's so stunning that even Samuel says, this is the man whom God has given you as a king. And, you know, you would think that, uh, what a reward. You know, the people are probably full of all kinds of hope at this point. You know, they've got a huge man, seems to be a man of war. He's a handsome man. He looks like he'll lead us well. And so we think like, uh, you know, things are going in a good direction. And so everyone is sent home somewhat encouraged. Uh, they've heard that they're going to have a king. They hear the rules of the king. You know, they, they, they get this document given to them, what's expected of the king, what's expected of the people. And the text begins to kind of wind down. But then as it does, we learn that there's, uh, we learn finally how we are to view Saul in this text. We finally get enough hints from the author about how we are to be disposed to this man who has just been coronated. And it says there are these valiant men, men whom God himself had touched their hearts and they accompanied Saul home. They went with him. They aligned with him. They put their allegiance with him. And it says, but there's these other guys, these, you know, scoundrels, these sons of Belial, the same words that were used of Eli's son. They rejected Saul and they said, I mean, how is this guy going to save us? What experience does he have? And we immediately are told by the tone of the text, these are worthless guys. They don't like Saul. Don't be like them. These are valiant men whom God is moving in and they are with Saul. Follow them, be with them. And so we are at least given dispositionally, we are for Saul. This is God's appointed king over the nation. But that question, the question of these worthless men, how can this man deliver us? Is really what hangs over the text. How can he deliver them? We don't have any hope thus far as readers that he'll do it. We haven't been given any signs uh, that this guy is going to be the guy that we should be awaiting. In fact, everything up till now about the kingship has been problematic. And yet this question comes to us, how can this man deliver us? Can he be a savior? Well, the next thing we want to see then is that God empowers a deliverer for a defeated people. God empowers a deliverer for a defeated people we are immediately given an opportunity to find out the answer to that question. How can this man deliver us? And then God says, well, let me tell you a story, uh, or let me at least put a, a situation in the life of our people that will give this man an opportunity to live up to the calling that he has. We see, you know, first the introduction of this enemy in verses one to three. We learn that this man, Nahash, the Ammonite, uh, has besieged Jabesh, Jabesh Gilead. And this man uh, is either so ferocious or Jabesh Gilead is so weak that there's not even uh, a skirmish before Jabesh Gilead's like, all right, we surrender, you know, uh, please make a treaty with us. We'll do whatever you want. We'll be your, your, your slaves. Just don't go to war with us. They surrender on sight. And Nahash agrees on one condition. He says, all right, you know, you can surrender and I'll let you serve me. All we have to do is scoop out the right eye of every man in Jabesh Gilead. I mean, consider, uh, you know, this deal they're about to make. Um, you know, strategically, obviously, uh, this severely limits all of the fighting men 
in Jabesh Gilead if their right eye is scooped out, especially if you look at how weapons of warfare were formed then. This would put them at a severe disadvantage, which is good if you were going to make a people subservient to you to, to, in some sense, handicap all of their men of fighting age is a pretty shrewd move. But we're, we're told that's not exactly why he does it. He doesn't do it just because it's shrewd. He does it merely out of spite in order that the whole nation of Israel would bear disgrace and shame. He says, so if you do that, if you're willing to humiliate yourselves and all of your people, then that's the, you know, those are the terms of this treaty for the sheer pleasure of heaping shame upon the people. It's interesting that Nahash means serpent. Um, And, you know, the Bible isn't trying to hide much here in the retelling of the story. It's clear that this man is an enemy of God's people. By his actions, we should know that. By his name, it becomes real clear that this snake hates the people of God. But maybe more telling is that the desire of this enemy, Nahash, is to enslave the people of God, right? You're going to be my servants and to disgrace the people of God, to shame them for the sheer pleasure of bringing shame. I mean, that is our enemy's great goal. He loves to steal and to kill and to destroy. He builds nothing. His only goal is to tear down anything that God is making. He has no power to create. All he has is the power to chip away and destroy. And he's been doing it from the garden onward, bringing shame and disgrace everywhere he goes. And he gets an actual joy from it. He gets pleasure in bringing about pain in the people of God. I mean, make no mistake, uh, those of you who are tempted uh, by the wiles of the enemy, you know, we always think, Well, you know, the reason that, you know, God doesn't want us to do these things is because they would be fun, as if the devil really is there saying, if you come over here, all I want for you is delight and joy and happiness and good times. It's only just a party over here. You know, that's the advertisement, uh, of course, uh, you know, above the surface. But once you enter the party, you realize he's only here to bring utter destruction. At the end of it all, all you get, you know, is a hangover uh, uh, and a lot of, you know, uh, guilt and shame and remorse. And all the joy promised is always just vacuous. It's a lie. And anyone who has fallen for that promise, which is all of us, knows it to be true. You know, you wake up in the morning and what you don't have is the peace that was promised or the prosperity that was at least offered. His joy is not in your best life now, but in your humiliation. And his desire is to degrade everything about you that God has made for his glory, to chip away at it until there's nothing left, until you become like him. And so we have Nahash coming to the people of Israel, desiring their humiliation. And so the elders of Jabesh Gilead say, just give us a week, which is a strange strategy. Give us a week. See if we can find someone who wants to save us among our people. Uh, You know, will you do that for us? And, you know, 
why, I'm not sure exactly what Nahash is thinking here. Obviously, there's so much pride uh, in this man that he says, oh yeah, you know, take your time. I'll give you a full week. Go, go look who for, every, you know, for whoever you want among your people and see if there's a deliverer. Uh, I'll be here waiting. But when you come back, know that this is the punishment you will receive. It's interesting in verse 3, they say, you know, let us find a deliverer. If not, literally, we will come out to you. And so it, it can be taken two ways. If you read your Old Testament, uh, there are people, who either you come out to go to war or you can also come out to surrender. And it's intentionally vague. You know, this is intended to be a deception to the enemy. Let us go look for a deliverer. And at the end of that time, we will come out to you. And the assumption is to surrender and to let you have authority over us. And so in verse four and following, we notice uh, in this you know, hint of deception. Uh, there's this further deception implied because we see in verse four, the messengers who are, who are ordered or who tell Nahash, we want to go all across Israel and find a deliverer. They all are in one group and they go to one place and they're looking for one man. They weren't on a scouting hunt wondering if they could find a deliverer. They knew that God had given them a king. And so they say, we're going to go seek our deliverer. And so they go to notice Gibeah of Saul, you know, named even in this text by his name. And they go to find this one who has been called a deliverer twice already in our text. And they give their report to the people of Gibeah. They tell them what they're doing there. And it says the whole place just begins to weep and lament. You know, they've relayed the story like, well, you know, the guy wants to take us as slaves, and then he's gonna you know, take our eye and he's gonna scoop those out. We're gonna have no right eyes, you know, we're just gonna be living there as slaves. And you would think this would get them fired up and they're just like, oh man, that's gonna be terrible when you have one eye, that makes us sad. And so they all just cry and they're just like, well, you know, things, things happen and we're sad that this is gonna, there isn't any idea that the nation's gonna rally and do anything. They just feel like it's a foregone conclusion. But then we learn that Saul is coming from the field trailing his oxen, and he hears this uproar, and he says, you know, what's all the crying about? And when he's told the news, it says the Spirit of God rushes upon him, and he's angry. It's interesting that, you know, he's full, filled with the Spirit, and the first thing that happens to him is his anger is aroused. That's not normally how we associate uh, these particular dispositions. The, this anger that Saul is experiencing is given to him by the Holy Spirit. What we're seeing in Saul is showing us in physical form what God feels about this particular situation. God is angry, and therefore Saul is angry, and he's going to do something about it. It's reflecting the very nature of God towards his people. It shows us that our God is a jealous God that he loves his people, that they really are the apple of his eye and that when one seeks to destroy them, he doesn't just sit passively by and hope things get better, that his anger is aroused towards it. Where we thought God would be angry, right? Here's what I've done for you and you didn't obey. Therefore, he gives them a king. 
And when the spirit does come and rush upon this king, the king is angry because God loves his people so dearly that he will not stand by while the enemy seeks to destroy them. It's a holy anger directed at his jealous love for his bride. I mean, if your child came home and told you the neighbor said the next time he sees him, he's going to scoop his eye out and make him a slave, you'd probably be pretty frustrated. Uh, at least I hope you would. Uh, you wouldn't just say, that. well, let's you know, show them Christian love and not say anything about it. Uh, I remember this from my own childhood. I had a, uh, my, my early encounter with a, a bully uh, in, in kindergarten. Uh, his name was Richard. He was huge, at least in my eyes. He was probably in second grade, so it seemed huge at the time. And I remember that uh, coming off the school bus one day, he threw me uh, into the creek down by our house. And I remember I came home and I was crying uh, and I was a little skinned up and my dad heard about it. And my dad got very frustrated and he left and he went to Richard's house and he talked to Richard's parents. I wasn't there. I wasn't privy to the conversation. Uh, but it's the kind of anger that you, you want, right? One that is provoked out of the right motives. Uh, the end of that story is Richard eventually got beat up by a big cousin of mine, which was great. Uh, the unfortunate part for Richard is that when Richard cried, it looked like Richard was smiling, which then got him another punch to the teeth uh, from our bigger cousin, which he didn't look like he was smiling after that one. Um, but all that to say, Saul is angry in a righteous way, angry enough to notice that he stops what he's doing and he butchers two oxen that are just standing there right in front of him. I mean, can you imagine the, the, you know, the gore of this particular scene? And then he takes the pieces of this oxen and he calls the messengers who all came as one body and he sends them all out with pieces. He says, now go gather all the people of Israel and tell them if they don't come, if they dodge this particular draft, this is what's gonna happen to their oxen as well. And so those who were sent out by Nahash, originally they were supposed to scatter, all go as one man until the one man Saul sends them out and then they scatter. And notice the whole nation comes back as one man ready in the fear of the Lord to fight against their enemies. They feared God so much that they had to act. And so... Saul says, go and tell Jabesh Gilead the news that before the sun hits tomorrow, before it gets hot, you will be delivered. And it says they are filled with joy. And so the men of Jabesh, interestingly, you know, they sheepishly go to Nahash and they say, I mean, you were right all along. So tomorrow morning when we all wake up, we'll come out to you like we said. And again, there's this vague language here, we will come out to you in the morning. And so Nahash goes to bed, you know, on his sulfur stinking pillow that night, uh, thinking that, you know, this is gonna be easy. He's already got these people, they're gonna surrender. And before even the sun rises, his whole nation is under attack. And then finally in the full light of the sun, he sees his own humiliation and defeat at the hands of God's people. He went to bed without a care in the world, world only to realize that he'd been thwarted. And if we aren't impressed with Saul now as a deliverer, if we don't see that, you know, this is God's man for this hour, this final little vignette, you know, is the icing on the cake. The people rise up and like, hey, who was that that was tweeting about this guy shouldn't be our king? Like, 
Let's start remembering some names, you know. Who was it that said this guy shouldn't rule over us? And Saul says, no, not, no one's getting put to death today. This is a day of God's deliverance. And so we see, you know, uh, you know, just the honor and magnanimity uh, uh, of Saul, and we, we are endeared to him as this deliverer of Israel. And the king and his people as one body ate before the Lord a peace offering that day. I mean, so what are we to make of this story? As wonderful as it is, I mean, what does it have to do with us? I mean, much in, in every way, because we're in this story. This isn't just a story we learn from. We are a part of what's happening here. You and I stand with Israel in this hour. Time and time again, we have rejected God as king and have wanted some other way to be ruled. And if you don't believe that, ask yourself the question, I mean, why do you sin? I mean, why is it that over and over and over again you say, not your will be done, but mine. Because you're saying to God, I don't want you to rule over me, at least not in that part of my life. I still want to have dominion over this or that. And so time and time again, we make known by our actions that we will not have God be Lord. But by his grace and sin of God, finishing the oracle of judgment that we deserve, instead he sends forth a king, a king who can deliver. And they will call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. I mean, there we stood for generation after generation, overmatched by the enemy, living under the dominion of his reign, dealing with the humiliation and the disgrace and all the disfigurement that it brings to be under his rule. And our compassionate God got angry. He got angry enough to act for us, to put on human flesh and filled by the Spirit to fight for us. I mean, you heard those texts this Advent season, didn't you? you know, we see uh, Saul here filled with the Spirit and he gets angry and he fights. And we see in all those Advent texts, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And what does Jesus do when the Spirit of the Lord is upon him? He sets liberty to the captives. He preaches good news to the poor. He, 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 he says to those who are brokenhearted, be set free. He opens the prison doors to those who are bound. Everything that he does by the empowerment of the Spirit is to liberate those who've been brought under the captivity of the evil one. He goes out in the anger and the righteousness of God, and he sets free those who the evil one has been humiliating all this time. Our king came full of the spirit to wage war and bring repair where our enemy had only brought destruction. And our enemy in his foolish pride rejoiced with glee when he thought he had won. He laid his head down on his sulfur stinking pillow thinking it was over on that good Friday only to wake up in the bright sun of Sunday morning and to be humiliated in the resurrection of Christ. Be completely disarmed and defeated once and for all. When he thought he had won, he had set himself up for his own demise. And this king even now offers grace and forgiveness, just like Saul, even to the worst of us. 
I mean, this is our story, and God has done it, dear saints, so that we can be set free. His compassion towards sinners who are broken by the fall leads him to anger that acts in order to redeem them, in order that they might be made whole, in order to set them free from the tyranny of the evil one. He has done this to set you free. And what is heartbreaking is a lot of time, we act as if that freedom means, that that means we can be set free to do the same things that we wanted to do when we were under the tyranny of the evil one. As if that's what freedom looks like, that the things that were degrading us and killing us and humiliating us, that Jesus died so that we could then just keep on doing those things, that that's what freedom is. But of course, Christ has died and risen in order to set you free so that you no longer have to live under that sort of bondage. The same spirit that empowered him for his mission and raised him from the dead, the same spirit that flooded Saul in this text dwells in you in order that you might do battle with the enemy, in order that you might no longer have to live under the dominion of sin and act as if that's what's normal all the while while it chips away and everything that is good and true and beautiful and all that makes you glorious in the image of God. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And when the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom not so that we can keep living like slaves, but freedom to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus himself. Freedom to look like our compassionate King to get angry at sin, not because we're angry that people sin, but we're angry because of what it does to people, of how it destroys them and how it destroys us and how it degrades all that is wonderful in this life. Even as we heard this morning, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Dear saints, beloved by God, people for whom his compassion never fails and for whom his anger burns against all your enemies. I mean, look at the one who fights for you. Look at him. Love him. And as you love him, serve him. And when you do, you will find that's where joy is. And you'll notice that they had the fear of the Lord in them. Our, our text says the dread of the Lord overtook them all and they were filled with joy. <laughs> when we see all that it took to redeem us and what God is willing to do because he loves us, how can we not look to him and say, Lord, make us holy, make us look like you look. Give us a desire for the righteousness that you have for there is life and joy and freedom. Everything else is a counterfeit and a fraud. May God give us the grace to live for him this morning. Let us pray.